Chapter Eight, Part Three of Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Forty Thousand Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Coaching through the North Island of New Zealand, its hot lakes and geysers. Part Three. Monday, September twenty ninth. We were up at five a.m. and leaving Onamutu in a buggy to coach fifty four miles to Waikarai. It was a very cold morning with a wind blowing from the direction of the South Pole. Passing Sulphur Point, we came to Walker Over Over, pronounced about like this Walker Over Over, whose sulphur fumes from the numerous mud holes we had seen rising in the distance yesterday. Then we travelled for some time beside Wakoro Witi, the whistling stream, a mountain torrent that rushes through the Himo Gorge. A few more miles brought us to Horohoro. It is a high, narrow ridge of rock that sweeps in one unbroken line from the coast of Coromandel Bay to the east of Auckland, and ends suddenly here, standing out against the sky as one precipitous line of unbroken rock. A slender, stately column, which distinctly presents the outline of a female figure, is called by the Maoris Henemoa. The natives think Horohoro has the appearance of a mighty monster fallen from heaven, and so call it Fallen Fallen. It reminded us exactly of the Palisades on the Hudson River, USA. We had magnificent scenery all the way, ranges of mountains before and behind us that only varied in shape and beauty, all clothed with the dull green or brown of the bracken fern. But the country was all so much alike that I felt if I had begun a sketch at the beginning of the journey, I could have finished it almost as well at the end. The country was totally uninhabited and uncultivated, except for a few scattered Maori settlements, and these wadis were so like the coarse grass growing round them that they were hardly to be distinguished from it. They generally lay under the shelter of some hill or on the outskirts of a bit of bush, and would be roughly fenced round with some pigs or a couple of rough horses about, as the only sign of life. We saw but one white man's house, and that was only building during the whole day. Now and again we came upon a herd of wild horses who galloped away at the sound of our approach the skeleton head of an ox fixed upright on a hill producing a most weird effect, and a gravestone by the roadside, marking the spot where some traveller's favourite horse had lain down to die, were the only other objects of interest we passed during the morning. There was a striking peculiarity in the way in which the ground was terraced into deep winding gullies, evidently showing the bed of some river flowing in bygone ages. The road was good going all the way, except for a few ruts, which required all Mac's care to avoid, as they were deep enough to overturn the carriage. When going over the edge of one of these, we used all to lean over, to throw our whole weight on the opposite side of the carriage, and watch anxiously to see whether the earth would hold or slip away from under us. Mac, our new driver, was a French-Canadian, 
whose ancestors had come over with Jacques Cartier and settled in Montreal. We had no change of horses for the whole of that fifty-four miles' drive, and it was wonderful to see how skillfully he spared his horses, watering them frequently from wayside streams. We kept ourselves from cramped weariness and saved the horses by walking up the steepest hills. All the wooden bridges around here are laid with planks lengthwise instead of crosswise, and if they are rotten, there is great danger of the wheels going bodily through. Once this nearly happened to us, and we escaped with a shave, and again when a horse put his foot into one of the holes and drew it out without breaking it. We had luncheon at Atiyamuri, under the shadow of the great vertical rock that stands three hundred feet high on the plain, called Pohaturoa, or the Rat's Tooth, from the jagged edges at the top. A Maori legend tells of a defeated tribe who fled to the summit of this rock and were besieged there for a week, living on the roots of ferns and hurling down rocks on their enemies. They found a pool of water at the top and only surrendered after burying sixteen of their number, whose graves are still to be seen up there. Here we found our old friend, the Waikato, again, and we laid our luncheon on its banks under the shade of a weeping willow. Mr. Graham here met the widow of the chief who had given him Wairakai. We coached on all through the afternoon, and towards five o'clock we turned off the high road across a rough grass track to Waikarai. Presently we seemed to be driving at random over stumps and bushes of tea tree, and about to plunge down into a valley by a road leading down the side of a precipice. We declined to go down this on other than our own legs, and I think the horses could not have held the carriage back without being lightened of our load. In the far distance in the hollow, a native wary with two outsheds was pointed out to us as Wakarai. Wakarai is the property of Mr. Robert Graham. Under the guidance of a native, he was the first white man who ever visited these wonderful geysers, mineral springs, and hot rivers. On expressing his admiration to the chief of the tribe, he was presented with Wairakai, for Mr. Graham speaks Maori like a native and is very popular with them. I believe afterwards the tribe, as also the government, objected to this gift of the chief, and Mr. Graham made due compensation, and by purchase added 4,000 acres to the estate. It is a most valuable property with enormous natural advantage as a health resort, and only requires capital and enterprise for its future development. It lies on a flat plain surrounded by mountains, and already a proposed township has been described with imaginary lines. The hot mineral stream that flows through the plain has been made use of to erect two baths, one hot and the other cold. A large pool further on is used for the cure of animals, and the geysers lie in a valley two miles away. Mr. and Mrs. Cullen were in sole possession and received us at the door of the wary. He is the bailiff and general factotum about the place. An engineer, he speaks a smattering of eleven languages and can turn his hand to anything. He has just erected the roughed shed with a row of stables on one side and some extra bedrooms on the other. He has fenced and dammed the water for the baths and will cement the bottom some day. He has made all the fences, paths, and gates about the place, and all with the help of one Irish boy, 
while Mrs. Cullen performs the work of three servants around the house. The wherry was a real native one, thatched on the roof and sides with coarse native grass, and lined inside with raupo, rushes growing in swamps. There was a blazing wood fire of logs on the open fireplace in the general sitting room, out of which three bedrooms opened, all furnished very scantily. We were in the rough and thoroughly enjoying it under such temporary circumstances. I helped Mrs. Cullen to lay the table and spread the preservations we had brought with us, tins of preserved butter, Swiss milk, and jam, and ran backwards and forwards between the kitchen out of doors and the wari. We sat down to high tea, Mr. Mack, our driver, joining us as a matter of course. The hut was light and airy, but I must say we suffered somewhat from the cold at night, the moon shining down through the crevices in the roof and through the blindless and curtainless window. Tuesday, September 30th. I was up at 6 a.m. and running down to the bottom of the garden, plunged into the warm bath. It was perfectly delightful swimming about in the hot, pale blue stream, and then gradually creeping round the wooden platform to where the water became tepid and then cold, till the final cure was under the shower bath at the end. A cold stream is brought down on one side of the bathing house, and the natural hot stream flows on the other, so thus you have a choice of every temperature. The mineral properties are the same as those at Ohainmutu, unequaled for the cure of rheumatism and all cutaneous disorders. The waters are equally valuable for animals as we had the means of testing. Our four-year-old mare, the near leader of yesterday, was sick and off her feed. Mac took her to bathe twice in the course of the day and gave her three bucketfuls to drink, and by evening she was perfectly well. After breakfast, I got on to a rough pony called Molly, and we rode over the hill through a track in the bracken to the geysers. Looking down over a green and well-wooded valley, we saw columns of steam, now dying, now increasing in density, and heard all kinds of underground rumbling and mysterious hissings and splashings. We tied up Molly and descended into the little valley, through the undershrub of tea tree, walking over a hot, spongy soil. Terakaraki was the first wonder we came to. It is a large pool of dark blue water enclosed by black rocks and encrusted with sinter. The ceaseless bubbling of the water above and below the surface gives it the more ordinary name of the Champagne Pool. Occasionally, the action increases, and masses of boiling water are thrown against the rocks, accompanied by clouds of sulfuric steam, and then it quiets down again to its usual effervescent surface. Tuha Tahi, the most active geyser in the valley, we arrived at next. Looking over into a fissure of the rock, we saw a small quantity of boiling water, and even as we looked, we heard a distinct underground crashing. It was the first warning. We retreated to a corner which we knew to be safe from the greenness of the vegetation. Another warning louder than before followed after a minute's interval and was still more quickly succeeded by a third one. It was the signal for the waters to begin heaving and surging, boiling over the edge of the basin and running down the terrace on which we stood. It threw up a small column, and then one higher and still higher, emitting dense clouds of steam, in the midst of which we caught glimpses of a silvery column, 
playing to a height of ten feet above us. Detached drops were thrown up still higher, shining out against the black wall of rock which forms a most striking background. We watched this boiling column anxiously, feeling that at any moment a gust of wind might scatter its contents over us, and then we looked wistfully at the reducing force of the convulsion and the grumbling subsidence of the element within the crater, till the gentle lapping of the water against the sides told us there was peace within once more. Again and again we waited to see the great Duhuatahi come forth from his cavernous depths, with always those same three warnings, those three underground grumblings and mutterings. They come quite regularly at intervals of seven minutes, and the action of the geyser itself lasts about three minutes. All around them were little embryo terraces, incrustated with pale pink, saffron, and green fringed with silica crystals, and the spongy rocks scattered about were colored to a dark red, brown, or brilliant orange, from the strong sulfur impregnating all that comes within its reach. We crossed the boiling stream Tiwarakai, the same which runs by the Wari, at the bottom of this volcanic valley. As we ascended, we heard the continuous thud of the donkey engine, which has a pulsating throb reverberating like the thud of a steam engine working in the hill underneath us. The origin of the donkey engine has not yet been discovered. From the other side of the valley, we look down into the mouth of the great Wairakai. It has a curious triangular crater of spongy masses of light brown sinter projecting out from the rock. The apex of the triangle is formed by a large incrustated rock something in the shape of an armchair. Great Warachai was not very active today, and we waited long before he gave any signs of life. Then we wandered on to Little Warachai, a blue lake concealed in a quiet corner behind manuka bushes, but this pale blue water is of a dangerous nature, being 210 degrees Fahrenheit. Below were the mud volcanoes, several patches of creamy-looking mud. At every instant, they bubbled up in little cones, bobbing up and down in the most comical fashion. Then there was the pool called the coffee pot, which literally boiled over every few minutes. After this, we had a terribly rough scramble of half an hour through tall tea trees, clinging to the branches down steep banks where the earth was quite hot. We had to pick our way across a boiling pool on loose stones and climb over cinder rocks whose crinkled edges cut mercilessly at our hands and feet unless care was used, and then we found ourselves standing on a ledge literally surrounded by active geysers. Not one minute passed after we had walked over the three blowholes in the rock called the Prince of Wales Feathers than they were playing away brightly in a tripled feathery spray. I sat down on a projecting stone, and feeling myself being scorched underneath, discovered I was sitting over a steam hole. As I got up, Niga Mahanga, or the twins, began to play vigorously. They have a large pear-shaped basin of cinder divided into two portions and resemble a huge turkey sponge in their creamy, perforated substance. They are surrounded by masses of white and orange silica, and explode in violent outbursts at intervals of four or five minutes. 
No sooner had they finished than the whistler began to be active and throw up from a black cavernous mouth accompanied by a small water spout which acts simultaneously with the whistler at intervals of ten minutes. We watched to see the boilers perform. These from a rock-bound pool covered with green shiny algae partially separated by a narrow chasm sent up spasmodically a column of water from six to eight feet in height and then we began to feel that if we waited there any longer with these geysers playing alternately around us the ground might open beneath our feet and ourselves be engulfed in a fiery furnace and pit of hell so we scrambled away afterwards we had a long hunt for the eagle's nest which is one of the most beautiful geysers in the valley wandering among the manuka clinging to rocks to support us over the crumbling surface we found it at last hidden away amongst the trees the nest is formed of long sticks that have fallen crosswise over the cone of the geyser and become gradually frosted from the deposit of silica left by the action of the feathery spray playing from the same it is so beautifully and delicately made one can hardly believe it has been formed by an accident in nature we had to cross ti warahai to reach the opposite side of the valley to return home in doing so we came to a quiet pool where the hot stream opens out into a small lake here we sat down to rest on a large red clay rock rap tap came from inside the rock and we all jumped up the rock was distinctly shaken the ground under our feet reverberated slightly and the echo extended to the neighboring rocks it was the wonderful steam hammer the thud of this titanic forge has been going on for centuries and will continue for many more yet the secret must ever remain a mystery should any one dare to unravel the mystery or tamper with the inside mechanism it will doubtless stop forever the theory at present started about the steam hammer is that the sharp tap is caused by water rushing through some small aperture in the rock but it is a very crude one and when wakarakai becomes better known other more possible solutions will be propounded at times the hammer is louder or softer but we could hear it distinctly as we climbed up the valley on the other side and with a favorable wind and clear atmosphere it can be heard on some days a mile off after luncheon the faithful molly was brought round again and the gentlemen mounted three rough-coated horses half an hour's riding going up and down small precipices while crossing some gullies and a canter through the bracken brought us to the hookah falls the wakato here is a beautiful broad river flowing swiftly between low banks one hundred twenty feet apart it suddenly runs into a narrow rocky channel only thirty feet wide imagine this enormous volume of water compressed and fighting through the deep trough the fierce struggle at the entrance the long green slide of the waters in their gradual descent the angry turbulent rapids where the channel becomes still narrower and at last the sudden shoot over the mighty waters between two large rocks we lay face downwards hanging over the precipice to look down on the fall the waters as they fell over took the shape of a mill wheel it seemed as if there must be one underneath churning them into a foaming circle 
just at the edge they become that intense sea-green color seen only to perfection at niagara from the point where we were standing we commanded all the changes of the hues from their muddy color of the river to their pale green in the narrow ravine from the mass of flake-like foam in the fall to the dark blue of the pool into which they tumble and here as the river widens out they eddy and swirl in a passionate turmoil and are far on their course before they settle down to their even natural flow the hookah falls have no great height but it is the immensity of the volume of water which constitutes their great charm the story is told of sixteen natives of a strange tribe who came to visit the hookah falls and boasted that they could go down them in a canoe the natives of Atapo dared them to try, and they embarked. One changed his mind at the last minute and escaped by jumping out onto the rocks, but the others went over the fall and were never seen again. Many years afterwards, some fragments of the canoe were found jammed between the rocks, but not one of the bodies ever rose to the surface, sucked under by the current of the whirlpool. Mr. Carey Nichols has recently tried to penetrate under the Hookah Falls from both sides. He has conclusively proved that it is impossible to pass through, but he found a small ledge in the rock under the falls on which you can stand with safety. There is a cave lined with maidenhair and other ferns, difficult of access, and which was only discovered a few days ago. Mr. Graham had not yet been in it, and he christened it that afternoon after me, the Ethel Cave. We rode up to a high knoll, whilst the boy who had come in charge of the horses was told to light the bracken below, so that we had a splendid view of a clearing fire, the flames shooting up to an enormous height in forked tongues, and some rapo burning with a loud crackling. The wind was blowing our way, bearing us bits of blackened furs, and we retreated before the stifling clouds of smoke. Then we went on to the Venus bath, a warm pool of pleasant temperature. Looking through the clear depths, we saw the bottom, enameled with beautiful green moss, and it is called the Venus bath from its wonderful, beautifying properties, which removes all freckles and blotches from the skin. We tested it, and it is quite certain that the hands we held in the water became much whiter. Mr. Graham and Mr. Davidson rode to a mile and a half further away to see Okurawai, the colored springs, a collection of hot springs and pools that look like pots of red, pink, orange, and yellow paint. But C and I turned homewards, the clouds and mountains foretelling rain. There is no doubt that by nature, Warakai is intended as a great health and pleasure resort for all nations, and that properly developed it will become the most valuable of properties mr graham also possesses the watering place of wairera that lies to the north of auckland and on the shores of the hauraki gulf and the lake house with some of the hot springs at Ho'onmutu. if these three were worked together by one company there would be a splendid future for them all in Australia they have no summer resort with the exception of Hobart in Tasmania and round trips to the Hot Lake District organized from Melbourne and Sydney would bring hundreds of tourists every year. As it is, with the numerous drawbacks of bad roads, indifferent coach service, and rough accommodation, 
they come in yearly increasing numbers. Properly known and advertised, and with the direct mail service that is now established between New Zealand and England, many would visit the hot lake district, escaping the rigor of winter at home. They would come out to enjoy the glory of the New Zealand summer when the climate is perfection. At that time of the year, all the baths and waters in Europe are closed, and Warakai and Onmutu ought to become, in time, the winter ems or spa. The long sea voyage of fifty days or so would be no drawback to many invalids. At present, Warakai is almost unknown. I am only the second lady from England who has been there, and it is very little visited by the colonists. Miss Gordon Cummings' prophecy that this district will be a vast sanatorium to which sufferers from all manner of diseases will be sent to nature's own dispensary to find the healing waters suited to their needs will now, at some no distant date, become true. When you think that the waters at Onmutu and Warachai are so strongly mineral and medicinal that they can be said to be an infallible cure with sufficient patience for rheumatism and all cutaneous diseases, how can they help becoming the great world-curing establishment? Think of the fortune that alone could be made from the bottling and exportation throughout the world of the water of the Venus bath, a sure cure for blotches and freckles or of that of Kirio Kinakai, the Maori for new skin, another of the hot streams of Arachai, which has a wonderful effect in restoring the growth of hair on bald heads. Sia was very much interested in a conversation with Cullen to find out that he had accompanied the Imperial Russian Survey of Officers as an engineer in an expedition towards the Indian frontier. He affirms that there is no obstacle whatever to the advancement of an army from Merv to Herat, clearly showing that the difficulty of Russian aggression on India does not lie in natural barriers, as has been alleged. Wednesday, October 1st. We left Warachai in the afternoon to drive ten miles to Taupo. The rain came on and prevented our turning off the road by an orchard which, although had just planted, is already blossoming, so great is the fertility of the soil, to see Kiro-Rirori, or the Blue Lake, a sheet of blue water lying amongst the white clay cliffs. From a great distance we saw the steam of the great and awful Karapiti, rising up on the flat plain, with the uncertain action of these volcanic blowholes. We arrived early in Taupo, being anxious to secure the best seats in the mail coach for tomorrow's drive. Taupo lies on the shore of the lake and consists of the telegraph station, the lake house, the hotel, one general store, and the neat white buildings surrounded by an earthen outwork of the armed constabulary force. There are about 15 of these AC stationed there. They were formerly established in defense against the natives and are now employed as police and in mending or making the roads. Those we have been traveling over are mostly made by the AC, aided by contracts with Maori laborers. On this afternoon, the store was closed, the proprietor enjoying the weekly event of the arrival of the newspaper by the mail. Whilst C went to see the chief of the AC, Major Scanlon, 
I wandered along the shore of Lake Taupo with Mac, picking up pieces of pumice stone of beautifully fine texture and light weight. Their colors were lovely salmon pink, ochre, pale green, or silvery pearly gray. We shall be leaving the king country tomorrow, and I must here say a few words about the Maoris. There are altogether some 15,000 in the North Island, while in the South Island they only number 2,000. The large tracts of bare pumice country which we have been passing through all belongs to the Maoris. The land is utterly useless to them as they attempt no kind of cultivation. As a race, the men have a fine physique, and although naturally lazy, they are capable of vigorous exertions, as has been seen during the years of the war. The women are treated as slaves, and are, as a rule, small and ill-developed. All agree in saying that the Maoris are a gentle, harmless people with few vices, but contact with the white man deteriorates them, and they become cunning and untruthful. The fusion of Maori race with the whites is impossible. The half-castes are said never to live beyond the age of 40. The Maoris are dying out, particularly in the South Island, where contact with civilization induces them to adopt European habits and dress, and the latter is the cause of the consumption which carries off a large proportion of them. Their land is being gradually bought up by the government or by settlers, and the introduction of this system has been most baneful to them, inducing them to depend on the sale of their land instead of their labor for subsistence. They seem to have little idea of religion, and that is, in its crudest form, mixed up with mythology and legendary heroes, handed down from generation to generation. Nor have they any particular reverence for the Rahunga, or priest. They believe in immortality, the road to their heaven is through Uranga, a cave in a cliff at the north cape of the island, whence they think that the departed spirits passed the realms above, using the roots of the Pudukawa tree as a ladder. They make the tangi, or funeral, the occasion of a great feast. The mourners are wreathed with fern and lycopodium, and cry and wail for many hours, after which they begin on the enormous feast which has been prepared. A tangi lasts for three days, during which all of the koru and riwai, potatoes, and poaka, pigs, collected in the neighborhood are consumed, leaving them very short of provisions for some weeks afterward. Many of the natives acknowledge the queen as their sovereign in preference to their own king, who is only followed by certain tribes. They have a great reverence for the pahika, European, and English is taught in most of the Maori schools. The tattooing common to all is done in imitation of the scales of a fish. The origin of the curious mythological sign of the three fingers, which is found on all the carved wooden images in the temples, is unknown. A vague theory exists, which is as follows. These wooden figures, which generally have a smaller one inserted underneath, are supposed to represent an ancestor. At any time, the chief might come and say it was tapu, belonged to him, or sacred, but the three fingers are a deformity, and nothing can be tapu that is deformed. The Maori language is sweet and soft-sounding. The alphabet consists of only 14 letters, the consonants being G, H, K, 
M N P R T and W, and the vowels are the same as ours. A characteristic feature of the language is their fondness for the double repetition of the syllable in words, such as guru, an owl, titi, the mutton bird, wee wee, a swamp rush, and toto, grass. All Maori names are chosen on the sensible plan of describing the object they name, such as Rotomahana, the hot lake, Huku Falls, snowy foam, Kiryo Kinikai, new skin, etc. Wai means water, so Wawera, the watering place near Auckland, means hot water, Wairoa, long water, Waikato, drawn out water on account of the length of the river, Waitangi, beeping water, and Wairakai, water in motion, on account of the volcanic action about there. End of chapter 8, part 3.